I don't know that there's anything more destructive to your overall well-being than a twisted view of God. Now, the irony and what alarms me many times in my counseling office is that the, we have this proliferation of ministries in the, in the pseudo-Christian world that propagate a very unbiblical, very twisted view of God and of salvation in Christ. It's a man-centered view. In other words, what I say what I mean by a twisted view of God is really an exalted view of man. And it's destructive to us. You know, I guess in a common thought, you would think, well, an exalted view of something would be actually to elevate it, to 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 make it bigger and better than it is. And and, and that's true in the pure definition. But to do that biblically, spiritually, is to destroy us. An exalted view of the self will destroy us, certainly when it comes to our understanding of the gospel and its glorious place in our life. Just for an example here, I spent 20 years laboring under the notion that somehow that God had sent his son into the world to make a complete sacrifice for the whole world for all time and it was really now up for everybody and every generation to decide whether or not on their own to receive that or to not receive it. What's worse, there were those who initially would receive it and then later change their minds and reject it and lose their salvation. So, in other words, ultimately, it isn't God who's in charge of his creation. It is not God who actually even saves his people by sending his son. It is ultimately the people themselves who save themselves with God's help, of course. Now, what this leads to is a very neurotic, very self-centered view of the gospel. And when your view of the gospel is centered on yourself, then it becomes very precarious because you really go through life like many Roman Catholics and people in Eastern Orthodoxy and, as we know today, uh, people in Pentecostalism especially and many evangelical churches struggle with this notion that, that somehow they never really know if they're saved. They really have a hard time finding assurance. In fact, in Roman Catholic circles, you are considered presumptuous, arrogant, to think that you're actually saved. You don't know if you're saved. You hope that you are. You do all the right things. You attend Mass. You go through the sacraments. You, you lean into grace. But on any given moment of any given day, you really have no clear idea and no clear assurance of your relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that mentality is not limited to Roman Catholics. It is very common, even among Lutherans and Presbyterians, and, and especially among the synergistic Pentecostals, who teach that you're, you're saved because of something you did. Now, contrary to that, is the life-giving health-imparting, well-being-nurturing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And there's nothing, there's nothing you can find in psychology. There's nothing you can find in philosophy. There's nothing you can find in sociology. And there's certainly no relational comfort that you can find that comes anywhere close to the full knowledge, the true knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you why. I was reading, I was on traveling not long ago, and I was on a plane reading my New Testament, and I read this passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And let me share that with you. Paul tells his readers, quote, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ and our be, on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, there's two things here. First of all, he gives a wonderful definition of genuine faith. Because he says here, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And then verse 8, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Genuine faith always is inclusive, not only of our relationship with God, but our relationships with one another. Genuine faith leads to a salvation that encompasses full reconciliation in our relationships with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with the Trinity, and with ourselves, and with those around us. Relational health is a key discernment, key evidence that you possess genuine faith that leads to genuine salvation. But look at verse 5 again. He says that he's giving thanks to them because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth. Now what I want you to grasp here is the nature of the order of salvation, the source of salvation. And this will set you free from a lot of religious neurotic uh, thinking. First of all, God's salvation, your salvation was of God's initiation and design and decree in eternity. And that which God decreed, God the Father decreed in eternity to come to pass. He then secured by sending his Son into the world to live, die, and rise again on your behalf. So what God decreed in eternity past is that you would be reconciled to him. And in history... The Son then secured that through his work on the cross 
and his resurrection. And then your conversion at a particular time in that history was applied to you by grace, through faith, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So salvation, your salvation, is a work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What the Father decreed in eternity past, the Son secured in history, in human history, and at a particular moment in your lifetime, you heard and you believed and you were sealed in that salvation. So, what Paul is proclaiming here to the Colossians, which is so incredible, is that when he first had contact with these people, he was proclaiming to them a salvation that had been accomplished on their behalf. A salvation, let me say it again, that had been accomplished on their behalf. So that their hope, there was a hope, there was inheritance, inheritance laid up for them in heaven. For whom? For the elect. For those whom God had decreed from eternity past would be reconciled to him in his son. So Paul stands up one day and he looks over this crowd of people in, in, uh, uh, in Colossae and he he doesn't know who will hear, who will believe, and who will be sealed by the Spirit. That's not his job. It wasn't Paul's job to sort out the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. It was Paul's job to plant and to water and then let God bring the increase. Paul's job was to issue a proclamation that God had in eternity past decreed that he would save his people and then in history sent his son into the world to fully accomplish that salvation on their behalf. And then as the Spirit did his work through the preaching of Paul, some heard and believed and those who heard and believed were sealed by the Spirit. Now, that's how it works. That's good news. That is a pastoral doctrine. And what I mean by pastoral is meant to offer you comfort and encouragement that your salvation never hinged on anything that you did to earn it, anything you did to receive it, and anything you did to keep it. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, did you hear? Yes. Did you believe? Yes. Well, how did that happen? Well, we learned that back in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, where he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. End quote. Even your hearing, even your believing, was a gift of God. It was a sovereign work of grace upon your heart, mind, and will of a dead sinner so that you were enabled to hear and to respond and to believe. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Are you hearing this, beloved? I hope so, because it will set you free, and it will give you a depth and a breath of assurance and comfort and delight that perhaps you have never known in your Christian walk. I say these things regularly because it's important to remind you, especially at a time when there is such a proliferation of false pseudo-Christianity on the march in America. The airwaves, both TV and radio, the bookstores, YouTube, social media are just filled with pseudo-false Christianity. And if you're trying to find comfort and hope, if you're trying to find guidance, if you're trying to find uh, teaching from these sources, the chances are far greater than they are not that you're just going to buy into some nonsense that's actually going to work against you. It's going to rob you of the joy of your salvation. And I want better for you. So, A.W. Tozier, let me close with this. A.W. Tozier once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's more important, the most important thing, because it is the key to our whole spiritual, mental, physical, and relational health. Our well-being as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, certainly within the Protestant tradition, is tied to what we think about God. Not what we even feel about God initially. It's okay to feel, but we can't base it on our feelings. We have to get our minds, we have to have our minds renewed. We have to think rightly before we can feel rightly. So, let me pose this question again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, this statement, I should say. That statement tells us that if what comes into our minds when we think about God is His glory and, and gratitude and rest, an assurance of what God has accomplished in His Son, then we're on the right track. If what comes into our minds when we think about God is how 
happy you are that you did the right thing, that you received Jesus. And that it's a good thing because that guy down the street didn't. And therefore, somehow, you must be inherently better than that guy. Then you're on the very wrong track. No, salvation is of the Lord. And there, my friend, is your comfort. Amen.